Welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Centre for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Real Assets in Liability Aware Portfolios and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Sorka Kelly Skolta, Head of EMEA Pensions Solutions and Advisory, and I will be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Michael Buckenholz, Head of US Pension Strategy, Institutional Strategy and Analytics Group, and Pulkit Sharma, Head of Investment Strategy and Solutions, JP Morgan Alternatives Solutions Group, both within JP Morgan Asset Management. Mike Pulkit, welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Maybe I could ask you, Pulkit, to tell us what real assets are. How do you define them and what falls into the category of real assets? We define real assets in part by what they are. The common theme for all real assets is they are large scale, they have long life, they are productive assets and they're tangible and hard assets. We also call them the fundamental building blocks of productive societies. Now, the investable universe, if you look at the whole spectrum of real assets, is dominated by what we call the troika of global real estate, global infrastructure, and global transport. Together, they represent roughly 95% of the market size. Empirical evidence suggests it's more than 20 trillion. Real estate being the major category followed by infrastructure and transport in terms of the pure sizing. Now, another definition we use, especially as it relates to liability-aware portfolios, is the relevance of core assets. And I'll just clarify the definition there as well. So we define core in the real asset space as assets where cash flows are forecastable for long periods of time with low margin of error. And what it manifests itself in terms of real estate is typically well-located properties in major developed markets. So think of office, industrial, retail, and multifamily assets. In the infrastructure space, I would say it's sectors such as regulated assets, so electricity, water and wastewater distribution, natural gas distribution, solar and wind, and airports and ports would fall into that definition. And then there is a third category which we call transport, so think of moving infrastructure. Categories which fall in that definition would be maritime assets, energy logistics, aircraft, and rail car. So the definition basically is the building blocks of productive societies. I would say real estate infrastructure transport dominate that, and then the core concept comes from the forecastability of cash flows. What are some of the headwinds that pension clients face, and how can real assets help some of those issues? Sure. So I think the current backdrop provides important context for thinking about real assets in today's environment. And for the first time in a long time, there may actually be more tailwinds than headwinds for pensions, but still issues to deal with. On the regulatory and accounting front, I think, especially for U.S. plans, we've had PBGC premiums, tax on unfunded status, and the recent tax law change. The combination of those two has really accelerated a lot of contributions for plan sponsors into their pension plan. And so plans now find themselves actually at some of the highest funded status levels, kind of mid-90s funded status, really since pre-crisis. On top of that, a lot of plans have shifted towards glide paths, and many of these were put in place in a completely different market environment, and even where there was perhaps a different opportunity set of instruments. So for instance, think about the proliferation and acceptance of private credit, for instance, or other alternatives those may not have been considered when putting into place GlidePass in the past. And so a lot of plan sponsors now, finding themselves better funded, have a number of questions to answer in terms of asset allocation, and especially because of the market backdrop. I read a statistic actually today that 
if there's not an economic collapse today, it will be the longest rally in stocks in the history of markets, essentially, without a 20% price drop. So unless we see that today, well, hopefully we don't. In terms of rates, the Fed continues to hike. And while the long end, which really drives pension discount rates, may not move up as high as the short end, a lot of plan sponsors are taking that into consideration. And so we take higher funded status levels, glide paths that are going to dictate de-risking, but also concerns about market valuations and interest rates. Plans want to de-risk, but given those views, maybe not pile all into long-duration bonds. And so I think plans are looking for other ways to de-risk, even plans that have de-risked or have kind of gone down that path. If they continue to add to long corporate bonds, may find themselves with issuer diversification problems. Taking all this into account, if we take a step back and think about what is risk, what is de-risking, we tend to think of it as the tracking of assets to liabilities or surplus volatility. And this is much broader than just thinking about the duration mismatch or hedge ratio. So when we take this view, diversification matters a lot. And we'll talk about this, but it's clear that real assets can play a role in de-risking a pension portfolio. And in fact, many cases without sacrificing expected returns, as we kind of traditionally see in glide paths. Okay, so maybe I should have rephrased my question. It's not so much about headwinds as maximizing the tailwinds that you're experiencing at the moment. And real assets give us an opportunity to do that. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. So against that definition, Mike, maybe you could talk to us a bit about how real assets can help to manage pension risk and dampen funded status volatility. We just recently published a paper on this topic called The Role of Core Real Assets and Liability, where we discuss the ranges of uses of real assets for pension plans in the spectrum of de-risking and dampening funded status volatility towards even enhancing returns of a portfolio. And really, the impacts on a portfolio are going to depend on the portfolio today and how it's positioned and how those real assets are going to interact with the asset classes in that portfolio. In a similar way, we can think about a funding source, and that is really going to drive the impact of real assets. So a simple example, if we think about taking down public equities and replacing them with core real assets, that is going to reduce the equity beta overall in the portfolio and help dampen the funded status volatility. May also take down or be neutral in terms of the impact on expected returns. On the other hand, if we're taking down fixed income, we can actually boost returns and do so without necessarily increasing funded status volatility. So we've also taken this to more of the extremes and looking at a very de-risk portfolio. So say somebody who is running 2 to 4% surplus volatility that's fully funded. And we found that you can actually replace long corporate or other long duration indices with, for instance, infrastructure or other real asset categories that have long dated stable cash flows and do so without increasing funded status volatility, but diversifying away some of that concentrated corporate credit exposure. Just to add on to what Mike said, just to back to the definition of core real assets and some of the work we have done on this topic, I would say we think of core real assets in particular as the MSCI world or Barclays Ag equivalent in the real asset space. Think of developed a model portfolio to do some of the analytics and analysis, and Mike highlighted some of the outcomes, but that model portfolio sort of has an anchor allocation to global real estate roughly 50%, and the balance in infrastructure and transport. So real estate, again, is the most transparent sector in the real asset space. It's relatively more liquid. Infrastructure provides 
a stable source of yield, inflation sensitivity, downside resilience, and transport for its enhanced yield and diversification potential. Now, I would say that these are private investments, so it's difficult to look at them analytically, but we've spent a lot of time bringing, I would say, more science and less art to the process of analyzing private real assets. And a lot of the work we have done with our global investment research teams and partners have yielded the key takeaways that all the categories of real assets are lowly correlated to broader public equities, and they're also lowly correlated to one another, which is sort of unique in that you have this unique ability to build a global portfolio of local uncorrelated assets. And the work we have done shows that the whole here is greater than the sum of the individual parts. And what that yields is a very powerful outcome if you look at that portfolio, which combines real estate infrastructure and transport in that it can generate versus, let's say, a 60-40 stock bond portfolio, roughly two to three times more income, a return premium in the range of 200 to 300 basis points, roughly 30% lower volatility, and with lower equity beta and enhanced inflation sensitivity. Now, if you swap that, whether versus core fixed income or equities in the overall portfolio, what that yields is lower funded status volatility, higher expected return and income, but at the same time, lower surplus volatility and higher surplus sharp. That's a really powerful outcome, and that sort of shows that coreal assets can play a role together, even when the objective is return enhancement or volatility reduction. I think what you're both saying is that real assets can really give a boost to the efficiency of the portfolio, and Mike, that that can feed through into the funded status volatility, as well as the general volatility of the portfolio. But I guess there's also that aspect of a stable income, which we talked about, which I expect is important for pension funds as they mature. Maybe, Pulka, you could talk a little bit about how the real assets can provide a differentiated source of income that helps with that diversification benefit. Stable income, and I would say stable predictable income, is the defining characteristic of co- for core real assets. So I would think of leases on well-located properties around the world. Think of contracts in the utility space or contracts in the renewable power space. Think of charters or sale leaseback transactions in the transport segment. If you look at all these asset classes, the common thread there is that roughly 70% of the total return is coming from income. And that is a stabilizing force, especially when if there is, let's say, an asset value decline. Empirical evidence suggests that this income, especially in the core segment, has been stable through time. And if I take sort of a more tactical look at the real asset segment, in the mature stages, let's say, of the economic cycle, our view is that investors should look at investing in real assets where the majority of the returns is coming from income. And that forecastability leads to more certainty of outcomes. And that's underpinned for core real assets by the stabilizing force of income, which is also non-correlated in a way. So that's and it's useful in the context of liability-aware portfolios, as Sorka mentioned, in that that income can be used as a source of return. I guess the other part of that is that real assets tend to be very sensitive to inflation. I mean, we talked about real in the sense of being tangible, but also there's that idea of them being real in the sense that they're linked to inflation in some way. And Mike, does that help in a liability where portfolio? Yes, I believe it does. And so for U.S. plans, especially compared to international or global pensions, explicit inflation linkage is rare, where there would be a COLA or some other type of linkage of the benefits to inflation. 
certainly there are plans that do have that in the U.S. and many globally. And so the ability to invest in assets that pass through inflation is going to be paramount for keeping up with the funded status and even improving funded status, especially in inflationary environments. But pension plans by design also have other sort of more indirect sources of inflation exposure. And so any plan that's open, most plans have benefit accruals based on compensation. And so there's ties to wage inflation there, whether it's a final average pay plan or an increasingly common type of plan, a cash balance plan, where credits are based on a percentage of compensation, which of course has a tie to inflation. But additionally, especially for U.S. plans, IRS limitations on things like maximum pensionable compensation, as well as the PBGC premiums, which are a huge driver of decision-making within pension plans today, are linked to inflation. So even plan sponsors who may sit there and say, well, I don't have a COLA in my plan, there may be these indirect sources of inflation exposure that real assets can really do a great job of handling and earning the returns in the portfolio that are needed to cover those costs. So real assets, just to think back on what we've talked about so far, they can give that boost to portfolio efficiency, that stable and differentiated source of income and help address some of these indirect linkages to inflation as well. I guess you have to ask, where's the catch? And I guess many investors would see the catch as being around potential liquidity concerns or operational complexity. Pulka, how can they address those kinds of concerns? Well, there's a full spectrum of liquidity available for real assets investing, ranging from daily liquidity to long lockup strategies. Now, the cost typically associated with daily liquid strategies is pretty higher equity beta. At the more lockup end of the spectrum, the cost there is, of course, there is return enhancement, but that comes at the cost of higher liquidity, typically higher volatility or surplus volatility, typically more binary outcomes. At the core end of the spectrum, there is typically quarterly to semi-annual liquidity available, and then the majority of the return is coming from income. So that can be a good way to allocate to real assets. But at the same time, we would encourage investors to look at right-sizing risk and looking at their liquidity need when investing in real assets. Now, from an operational perspective, there are several risks, as you said, Sarka, that catch. The risks could range from execution risk, regulatory risk, counterparty risk, and then investing in real assets, especially in the private space. These assets cannot be bought on a computer screen. They require a local presence, on-the-ground presence. So there are several ways for mitigating these risks would be from a allocation perspective, we'd encourage investors to partner with managers who have people on the ground, or I would say on the water, in the air, who can manage a lot of these risks. And there is a lot of active asset management, which goes into sourcing, underwriting, and managing these assets. Another way of looking at risk management would be to look at the investing in real assets at the portfolio level and not taking single asset risk. And because the operational risks are magnified at that single asset level versus, let's say, a portfolio, we also encourage investors to look at broadening the spectrum of real assets investing and looking at real assets holistically, so real estate infrastructure and transport, to minimize a lot of the concentration risk in a single asset class within real asset space. So I also think that the income and stable income component of real assets goes a long way towards mitigating some of the liquidity risk for liability where investors. In a sense, if you think about the mechanics of a pension plan, benefit payments need to be paid out you know, every month. And to the extent that more of those can kind of be matched off with stable, predictable sources of income, then it reduces the likelihood 
that you would be forced to liquidate assets and especially liquidate in a liquid asset, especially as plans de-risk, the tolerance for illiquidity can actually increase as well. And so I think these two points taken together benefits for liability where investors and how the liquidity issues of alternatives can be mitigated. So I guess what you're saying, Mike, is that really some of those liquidity challenges are maybe a little bit overdone because you can actually get quite a lot of cash flow generated by these types of assets that helps with some of your immediate liquidity needs. And people need to take that into account as well, right? I mean, liquidity is extremely important, but all alternatives or all liquid assets are not sort of created equal when you think about the liquidity profile and certainly the income profile. And at some end of the spectrum, there's alternative assets that are just locked up for a period of eight to 10 years or even more. And so really, I think what pension mechanics come down to are cash flows, you know, benefit payments in and out. And we start to think about that framework of managing a pension plan. The income from real assets can really help out a plan operationally and kind of ease some liquidity concerns they may have. And income actually is a source of liquidity and at sort of approximately 70% level where, you know, for core real assets, 70% of that is income, that could act as a good source of liquidity in the liability-oriented portfolios. Coming back then to some of the things that you said, Pulkit, and this idea of matching to some extent some of your pension payments on a monthly basis. Pulkit, you mentioned about the importance of having people local on the ground. And I guess the question that's forming in my mind is whether you guys think of this as a global real asset set or to what extent currency might make you think about keeping that more local? Yeah, we think about real assets more from a global perspective. So the similar to how you would think of uh, MSCI World in the global equity space or the Barclays Global Ag in the fixed income space, that same construct is what we apply for real assets, especially core real assets. And in terms of the opportunity set, I would say some of the themes which we are seeing broadly is that, as Mike said earlier, we are in the mature stages of the economic cycle. What that means from a real assets perspective is that we would overweight core-oriented strategies, strategies where the majority of the return as is coming from income. There's typically higher quality associated with those cash flows as well. Typically, these assets are also in the developed markets. And opportunities exist for core real assets around the world. So in the U.S., core real estate is supposed to generate roughly 7 to 8% total return, majority of that coming from income. It's relatively speaking has still relative value versus, let's say, anything in the fixed income space. Look at triple B warrant, bond spreads or treasury spreads from a cap rate basis. If you go to Europe, there is a little bit of lag in the European real estate market versus the U.S. And it's seeing fundamentals recovery. There is lower levels of supply in the European real estate space. In Asia, for example, that could be another interesting opportunity set from a core real assets perspective. We would focus on more developed markets, let's say Japan and Australia. Right. And so, Pilka, also you mentioned earlier about how you get more diversification within real assets than you get within equities or within bonds. Does that apply when you're thinking about globally diversifying real assets as well? Yes, absolutely. I think the, the point of diversification actually is even more profound in the real asset space because end of the day, these are local assets with local economic drivers. So there is this element of diversification, which is more pronounced in the real asset space versus anything in the equity space. What that leads to is a lot of non-correlation, whether it's from an income perspective or total return perspective. So there is actually a stronger case for going global in real assets. 
because the combination dampens a lot of that volatility and drawdown. And you're looking at these real assets, asset class holistically, then let's say in any standalone category, from a relative value perspective, let's say versus a 60-40 portfolio, real assets are, if you look at it from a backward or forward looking perspective, can generate anything from a 200 to 300 basis point return premium with a lower volatility profile. So that's a strong outcome versus anything financial assets. And then I would say from an opportunity set perspective, if I just look at the opportunity set from an income generation standpoint, then global property today can generate roughly 4 to 6% total returns. And there are opportunities which exist across the world, whether it's U.S. real estate, European real estate, I would say, has a little bit of a lag versus U.S. or the developed markets of Asia. If you look at Japan and Australia, the income profile roughly is into the tune of 4 to 6%. And we are talking about well-located assets in the developed markets. If you go to the infrastructure space and with a rapidly growing asset class, sectors such as renewable power, solar and wind, and the utility segment. If you look at those sectors in U.S. and Europe, the yield profile there ranges anywhere from 5 to 7%. And moving even beyond fixed infrastructure to moving infrastructure or transport, think of, say, leaseback transactions or think of in the energy logistics space or aircraft and rail car leasing, that has an income profile of 8 to 10%. So there is a diversified source of income which can be generated globally in the real asset space. But the key point there is that all these categories are non-correlated with each other. So when investors look at investing in real assets, that combination can not only generate a resilient source of income, but at the same time deliver that with a lower volatility profile and while maintaining the common theme, which is that all of these categories are end of the day equity beta dampeners in the construct of the overall portfolio. I think the sort of global versus local question is an interesting one for implementation. And I think Polkan and I talk to a lot of investors across different markets, and there tends to be a home bias, especially in real assets or real estate space. I mean, some institutional investors even own the buildings that they operate in, which I guess you could say that's a literal home bias, but definitely. A lot of the conversations we've had are about diversifying away from that home country bias. And it can be, as Paul had said, diversifying globally to different real estate or real asset sectors, different major cities, but also into these different categories. So there's a lot of multiple dimensions of diversification away from, say, for a U.S. investor, just U.S. core direct real estate, where they can really kind of achieve some of those enhancements we've been talking about. I would say a lot of the home bias also is a function of the fact that a lot of the international categories within real estate have not been as institutional, let's say, as the U.S., which is probably the most institutionalized market from a product perspective, from an execution perspective. And that's rapidly changing. And what we also see is that at the larger end of the institutional investor spectrum, there is a lot less home bias than, say, investors who are just starting out their allocation. So there is an element of familiarity which leads to that home bias. But all the work we have done from an analytical perspective shows more global portfolio leads to more resilient outcomes from an income volatility or a drawdown mitigation perspective. Lots for investors to think about. Maybe I can ask you to sum up and say, with bringing together all of that, how investors should think about allocating to real assets, given the portfolios they have today and where you think they need to be in the future? I think the answer is kind of almost in the question. It's that investors should think about real assets, but they should do so in the context of their current portfolio 
what are their objectives and constraints, where do they want to go. And I think that real assets, depending again on how you construct that portfolio and what your funding source is, can play a role in almost any objective for pension plan investors. I think at this point, the scales have tilted towards more de-risking as we've seen a lot of tailwinds in terms of improvements in funded status. And so I think we'll see a lot of focus on de-risking side rather than return enhancement. And so thinking about replacements for risk assets like public equities. But then on the other hand, as these de-risking portfolios get built up, looking for alternative sources of long-dated cash flows that can seek to pay benefit payments and match off some of those cash flows within pension portfolios. And just to add to what Mike said, some of the work we have done recently suggests that even a 5% allocation to core real assets can actually move the needle, whether you're looking at, from an objective perspective, return enhancement or risk mitigation. In the de-risking scenario, that 5% allocation to real assets, if swap versus equities, can enhance a lot of those outcomes, let's say dampening of surplus volatility, higher surplus short ratio, without a lot of that duration risk. In that spectrum, which as Mike highlighted is where most of the plans are today, core real assets can almost act as a better complement to the hedge portfolio let's say, versus public equities. And in the more return enhancement type of scenarios, if you swap out fixed income and replace that with an allocation to core real assets, what it does is dampens a lot of that equity beta and generates enhanced return outcomes without really adding volatility to the overall portfolio. In conclusion, I would say that when it comes to real assets, as you've highlighted, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts in that the combined approach of looking at real assets holistically, just real estate infrastructure and transport together can yield better outcomes. Given where we are in the economic cycle, an overweight to core or an overweight to income-oriented strategies is what we think is a prudent approach of looking at investing in real assets, especially in today's economic environment. And I would also say that real assets and core real assets can play a role at each stage of the pension glide path, whether if you're looking at return enhancement, as a substitute for fixed income, if you're looking for volatility mitigation as a substitute for equities, and that swap and at just to the 5% level can actually move the needle. By that you mean late in the current cycle, right? That's right. So the strategic case is clear and there's no reason to delay. Is that a fair summary, Mike and Fulcott? That's right. Act immediately. (laughs) Very good. Well, thank you for joining us on the Centre for Investment Excellence today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us today on the JP Morgan Centre for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on our website. Recorded on August 22, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research. 
nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. 
Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.